0: All right. so, as you see, the plan for this hour is to study the answers to questions 9 and 10 on the ACBC Theology Exam. And it's probably not the first time you've had two questions combined in one session, and you'll probably see more of that since there are way more questions than there are uh, lecture sessions. Uh, And it makes sense to combine these two, uh, kind of as I alluded to, basically because they both have to do with the doctrine of anthropology. And that word, if it's not familiar, is just a fancy way of saying that they have to do with what the Bible teaches about man. Anthropos, from which we get anthropology, is the Greek word for man. And so that, of course, is why we opened with Psalm 8, which is just a glorious biblical theological commentary on the exalted position of man within creation as God's image. And we'll touch more on that a little bit later. And that's also why it seems like a good idea to take a look briefly by way of introduction at the topic of anthropology generally. Uh, first, and you have this in your notes word for word, this is from the ACBC Standards of Doctrine, Article 6 on the Doctrine of Man. And as you answer your uh, exam questions, particularly with regard to theology, it could be helpful to access those uh, doctrinal standards, which are on biblicalcounseling.com. So this is directly from Article 6 of those standards. That God created man out of the dust and breathed life into him so that he became a living person. Human beings are made in the image of God and were created by him to be the pinnacle of creation. Man is by design a dependent creature, standing in need of divine counsel to serve God and to be conformed into the image of Christ. Now that's just a really good and concise biblical summary of the doctrine, and it is one I thought that you might find helpful as you consider these issues of anthropology in writing your exams. Uh, further to the end of starting to get our heads around the doctrine of man biblically, uh, here is, I think, and you'll see this reflects uh, what's in that statement. Uh, this is a sort of a concise biblical framework coming, as you can see here, from just the first three chapters of Genesis. Is this working? Do I need to... There we go. Got it. Okay, so coming from the first three chapters of Genesis... Uh, by which we can understand in the most general overview kind of way what the Bible teaches about man. And you might say these are the three D's of anthropology. First, dignity. Genesis 1, God made man in his image. So man is a creature of incomparable glory among all the other things on earth. The dignity of human beings is unsurpassed and unparalleled on the earth because man bears the image of God. So this is the exalted side of what it means inherently to be a man or a woman. Someone made in the image of God, man inherently is dignified because man is made in God's image. Now the Bible helps us not to go overboard on the value and dignity that we ascribe to man because while man is made in the image of God, he is also made out of dirt, we find in Genesis 2, dirt or dust. And this is before the fall. Genesis 2 teaches that man, very much unlike God, is a creature formed from the dust of the earth. So this is the more humble side of what it is inherently to be human, and as I said, that's before the fall, and this all is reflected in the, name, the language we read a minute ago from the ACBC statement, including that man is a dependent creature. Although we are exalted in that there is a sense in which we are like God, he's made us in his image, we are at the same time needy, and, and helpfully the ACBC statement points to how we are most in need, perhaps, of his word, which he gives to us graciously, Uh, So we are exalted and at the same time needy, even, of course, before the fallen, in our unfallen state. We are and always have been dependent on God. So we are dust, secondly. So we have dignity, we are dust, and thirdly, we are, since Genesis 3, depraved. In Genesis 3, we see not only is man a creature of dignity and dust, but man is also depraved. He's corrupted by sin through and through. We see, and this especially is true as we see the subsequent chapters of Genesis, what happens uh, leading up to the fall, that man is just insidiously evil, and thoroughly so. There is no part of man that is uncorrupted by sin, the Bible teaches, and nothing that man does is perfectly unstained by evil. And we call that total depravity. Man is depraved. And so, again, this is a general biblical framework, and I think if we think of man biblically according to these three categories we'll have a comprehensive and balanced view of how we should think about mankind. And sort of to sum that all up, man is an exceedingly glorious lump of dirt who is thoroughly corrupted by sin. So lots of sort of paradox and tension involved there. And because of that, because that's sort of a complex reality, that's the Trinity earlier we saw that was the case, is true of man also. Because that's true, only God could explain both the glory And at the same time, the horror and the smallness of humanity. And so, praise the Lord, he does so in his word in the Bible. So again, that's a general introduction to the topic of biblical anthropology. Now we'll move on to exploring the answer to question nine, which says, Explain, using biblical categories, your understanding of the image of God in man. Or, to put it another way, what is the image of God in man? And what we're going to find as we investigate is that the image of God in man explains not just what man is, but also the purpose for for which man has been made. And simply put, and you may have heard this before, we say it a lot at our church, it kind of informs our uh, purpose statement or vision statement, uh, that we exist to show the world what God is like. We exist to show the world what God is like. And so how do we do this? In two ways. We show the world what God is like by reflecting him, which is by resembling him or by looking like him, and then secondly, by representing God in the world. Now in keeping with this, we're going to look at three ways, or the three aspects of man through which God intends to accomplish this, and this will form sort of the bulk of the outline for the next little bit here. These are the three aspects of man through which he intends to display his glory in the earth. Number one, through our capacities, which is what man is. Secondly, through our character, which is how man lives. And then thirdly, through our calling, a man's work, what he does. And then just so you know, theologically, you'll see these, probably as you look this up in systematic theologies, these are frequently discussed under the headings, the structural aspect, the ethical aspect, and the functional aspect. So those are kind of interchangeable with the headings the three C headings we have here. So first, capacities, the structural aspect. So what do we mean by this aspect of the image of God and man? Well, God gave man certain capacities that enable us to express God's character and God's rule in the world. And this is both how we resemble him and how we represent him as we rule. We do so in part through our capacities, John Frame says that the image of God consists of capacities that equip man to be Lord, with a lowercase l, capacities that equip man to be Lord of the world under God. And we'll see in a moment in Genesis 1, that's what God set about doing at creation, was to make us in such a way as we could fulfill that purpose. Examples of these capacities include things like our rationality, our cognition, our creativity, our linguistic ability, ability. Our relational capacities, our spirituality, our ability to know and love and commune with commune with God and with others. They include our moral capabilities, and really the list could go on and on. Things, capacities that God has given us that enable us to show the world what God is like through uh, resemblance and, and representation. And it's in keeping with these capacities. That God made human nature structurally to be suitable for the incarnation of his Son. And that's just kind of a beautiful thing to think about with regard to our humanity. That when God created the world, he planned from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, that ultimately the display of his glory in creation would be when he sent his Son to appear visibly and personally in creation. We talked about this a little bit earlier, I think right following the session that uh, that the incarnation is just this glorious moment when the Son expresses himself and relates to the world by assuming a human nature, and that nature was, was planned perfectly to be suitable for that purpose. So God man, made mankind in his image with the incarnation of his Son in mind. God assigned to human nature all of those structural components that I listed a moment ago, and, and more than that even— so that the so that human nature would be capable of expressing the glory of God and supremely so in the incarnation of his son all right so one application of this aspect of the image of God in man because of what man is and as reflected in our capacities because of what people are because people structurally resemble God then the way we treat people has a direct bearing on our relationship to God and to sort of clarify what I mean about that, let me give you an illustration. Uh, this is something we've seen in the Muslim world, that if someone wants to be kind of a jerk or provocative to Muslims in the Middle East, what do they do? We've seen this most famously with, I think it's called Charlie Hebdo, the publication in France, uh, that they take an image of the prophet Muhammad, a picture or a drawing, and they dishonor it, or they deface it in some way. So they dishonor the false prophet Muhammad by dishonoring his image. Right. So think about that. What implications should that have for how we view any dishonoring of any and every person around the world? Because all people are God's image in the world. If you want to dishonor the God of the universe whom you can't see, you find his image in the world and dishonor that. Conversely, if you want to honor the unseen God who made the world, find his image in the world and honor that. So as you dishonor the image of God in the world, you dishonor God. As you honor the image of God in the world, you honor honor God. 1 John teaches this, that the way we treat especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, who especially bear the image of God in the world, is a reflection of our love or disdain for God himself. Similarly in James 3, and it's set down very early and very clearly in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood, where it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, because man is made in the image of God. Does that make sense? We dishonor God when we dishonor his image. We honor God when we honor his image. With general reference to every single person in the world, each of whom is made in God's image, and with particular reference to believers in whom the image of God has been redeemed and is being renewed. And we'll see more about that as we go. Okay, the next aspect of the image of God in man is man's character, how a man lives, the ethical aspect. Man images God by imitating God, by reflecting God's character in the way he lives. So God intends for man to use his Godlike capacities that we looked at under the structural aspect, in ways that are like God. We read this in Ephesians chapter four, verse 24, "Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God." And remember, Genesis 1 says man was created in the image of God after the image and likeness of God. So put on the new self, Ephesians 4 says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So when we live in ways that are righteous and holy, we are living up to the likeness of God according to God's intention there in Ephesians 4. Likewise, Colossians 3, verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, as we saw in the general overview of biblical anthropology with our third D, that man is depraved, the fall marred, the fall of man marred or damaged the image of God in man. It's still there. We find in subsequent chapters of Genesis, chapter 5 and chapter 9 in particular. But it's not operating as God intended. Rather than reflecting God's goodness, man is most often reflecting corruption, depravity. But what we find in texts like Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 is that in the gospel we get to engage in the renewal of the image. So that when we tell the truth to other people rather than lying, that is part of the renewal of the image of God in man. As we put off sin and live holy, righteous lives, our character, that, that aspect of the image of God in us, is restored such that it is part of what the image of God in man is supposed to be. So that was something that was marred at the fall and recaptured, restored in the gospel. And note this, we please God when we reflect him. In these ways, when when God looks at us and he sees a reflection of himself, God is pleased. And this you might catch is kind of along the lines similar to what we talked about with the Trinity earlier. God loves his eternal fellowship with the radiance of his glory, the Son. And so as his adopted sons and daughters are more closely conformed to that image, he's pleased. He loves what he sees and he delights to fellowship with us. And on that note, we are never more like God than when we are living to glorify love and delight in him, which is sort of the thrust of a lot of the New Testament texts uh, that indicate that that's what we should be doing, as we have the image of God renewed in us. So this is the ethical aspect of what it means to image God as reflected in man's character. Living as the image of God in this aspect is most true of us when we are living to glorify love and delight in God himself. The next point, uh you become what you behold, uh idolatry and the inversion of man or God in the image of God in man. We actually covered this earlier in the lecture on the Trinity, when we take our eyes off from God and we turn inward, when we turn to any form of idolatry we seek to serve and please and love ourselves. Uh, And as we talked about earlier, this is the opposite of the outward love and self-giving that characterizes God in his eternal love and self-giving. And it's opposite of what is intended for us as the image of God. We're supposed to radiate love and giving and blessing outward, and the fall inverts that. And so any practice of idolatry, uh, any practice of uh, beholding something that's a false god or, or feeding that to our souls and to our... Uh, Eyes is what's going to sustain us or keep us up. That's an inversion of what was intended uh, for the image of God in man. Okay, one application or implication of this aspect of the image of God in man, and I think we probably already covered this, at least in part, that living godly lives fulfills, in part, the purpose for which man was made. As we put off sin and put on righteousness, like in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, we are restored and renewed as God's image bearers in the world. We're showing the world increasingly what God is like through our godly living as we engage in that. Now, one example also on the negative side, there is a sadly popular idea in some places in Christian psychology or Christian counseling uh, that goes kind of like this, that man is created in the image of God basically means that man has a relational need and longings to be loved. Because God is a Trinity, he experiences loving communion within himself for all of eternity, and so you catch that's based partly on truth. That is true. But then the implication that gets drawn. Therefore, because man is created in God's image, man has a need for relationship and love. And the application of this in a situation, for example, where a wife is not being loved well by her husband, then she's not getting what she needs. And because she's not getting something that she needs, she's not able to function in ways that she's supposed to. So does that error, does that make sense? Anyone think of what the truth is about God that corrects that error? It's not that God has needs that he fulfills within the Trinity. God is abundantly self-satisfied. And it's the overflow of his abundance that he gives to man. And so, uh, we don't, we don't have needs that are unmet by God. Everything we need is in him. And so from his same eternal infinite fullness, we can minister no matter what our circumstances. So the truth about God can correct that kind of misconception about man and, and our needs. So there's just another practical way in which your understanding of the image of God matters. The next aspect of the image of God in man is calling, what a man does, the functional aspect. The image of God in man refers not only to man's capacities and character, but it also refers to the office that man holds, the task that we're given to perform, or the job, the work that we're given to do, our function, our function. Man's role on the earth as Lord, as I mentioned earlier, resembles God's role as Lord over all things. Man's rule over the earth also represents God's rule over all things. And we find this very clearly in Genesis 1, verse 26, that the major expression of man's creation in God's image is man's rule or man's dominion. It says there. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." Now, the first part of verse 26, the creation of God, man in God's image, is expanded on in verse 27. So you have the creation of man expanded on as it further articulates the truth of that event. Likewise, the second part of verse 26, which is the dominion that's given to man, is expanded on in verse 28. So that dominion is described more fully in verse 28. And this is the major expression in the text of Genesis 1 of what it means for man to be God's image. And really, this, so the functional uh, aspect is probably the most emphasized biblically. Um, and it's definitely the most emphasized within uh, Genesis chapter 1, of the respect in which man is to be like God. So this is verse 28 in Genesis 1, uh, the creation mandate, what it is that we have as our calling as the image of God. It says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So just some details in the text, it's worth noting that these are the only imperatives, the only commands given to man in Genesis 1. So you have 31 verses, and just in this one verse, you have the only commands, the only imperatives in the chapter, and there are five of them here. Boom, 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 all five in one verse. So that's something just exegetically, you zoom in and you say, okay, this is a big deal. That's why I said a moment ago, this is probably the most, it is the most emphasized uh, aspect of the of the image of God in the chapter, God created man in his image, and the major expression of this we 're finding is man 's office or man 's function that man is to rule and to have dominion and this is supposed to be reflected as the creation mandate is fulfilled god 's intention is to fill the earth with images of himself to represent that God is the one who is ruling over all of the earth. And we see very clearly in those same verses in Genesis 1 the absolute comprehensiveness of this mandate, that man is to rule over every last thing God has created. Psalm 8, which I read to open the session before I prayed, celebrates this same aspect. David is glorying there in Psalm 8 over this truth that man is the vice-regent or the viceroy of the true king over all the earth. So one application of this aspect Uh, The aspect of our calling, as you might expect, is the glory of God displayed in our work. Um, So this is a, again, we move into these sort of applications. This is a practical way in which this theology can work itself out in our lives and in our counseling. Uh, The glory of God displayed in our work, it matters uh, because of this truth. Each man and woman is to work like God did in creation. To play a part in producing things or providing services that help people, each is to work in ways that make the world more productive, fruitful, hospitable, just an enjoyable place for us to live. And so when you mow the lawn or make a meal or parent or go to work, as long as your work contributes to the good of others in some way, which it always does unless your work is inherently more immoral, then all of these things are an expression of God's rule and God's loving care. Over all the earth, and as with our character, so in our calling, we can be renewed in our likeness to God. The image of God can be renewed in us with reference to our calling when we work, whether we're parenting or making widgets or taking an order or selling a product or filling out paperwork. Any of these things that we're called to do, we can we can be renewed in this when we, in Christ, uh, we're able to fulfill our calling to the glory of God with the desire to please and reflect God as we do our work. So that that motivation, that desire to conform to scripture as we engage in our calling makes us more reflective of what he designed at creation. So increasingly, we can function like we were made to do. That's That's part of the effect of the gospel, uh, and again on this aspect of the image of God in man. So that concludes our look at the three aspects of the image of God in man, our capacities, our character, and our calling. Any questions on that before we continue on? Okay, let's see. How are we for time? Okay, we're doing good. So next, you see in your notes a couple of related concepts, and I figured we'd be running short of time, so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail Uh, about these. But kind of the point is that the image of God and man is a concept that shows up in more places in the Bible than just where you see those words. So there's sort of an elasticity uh, to the concept, if you will. And one of the the places where this is the case is the image of God and glory. So you may be familiar with the Westminster Confession, uh, where it asks, what is the chief end of man? What's the first part of the answer? To glorify God. So, do we exist to show the world what God is like, as his image, or do we exist to glorify God? And the answer is both, and those are really, in a sense, somewhat interchangeable. And so, uh, whenever you see that as an opportunity in Scripture to glorify God, what you're seeing is an opportunity to fulfill that purpose for which we were made in God's image, to spread, and this this is both the creation mandate and then the great commission. So, in being fruitful and, and and multiplying, we're spreading images of God all over the world and in fulfilling the great commission in all the various ways that we endeavor to do that including in the counseling room, we are seeing that that image all over is being renewed and made more like that which it was supposed to represent to begin with. So, we glorify God as the image of God spreads across the world everywhere that God rules and is remade through the gospel to look more like his son. So that's image and glory. Uh, Second sort of related category is image and sonship. There's also a close connection between the idea of image and sonship in the Bible, starting in Genesis 5, where Adam has a son in his own likeness and in his own image, and as I pointed out recently in my sermon from that chapter, if Seth is Adam's image and likeness, and Adam is God's image and likeness, then Seth is God's image and likeness. And so every single person, everywhere who's ever been born, is God's image and likeness. So uh, whenever you see that sort of adoption, sonship language, Uh, especially in those sort of uh, New Testament contexts where it's bringing us back to what we were originally intended to be, uh, there's a connection between that and the image of God. We are sons and daughters of God because of the image of God in man. So again, there's just a little elasticity to the concept uh, throughout Scripture of the image of God in man. We could have another slide on the name, uh, or like not just God's name, but the naming of sons, Name and image is a related concept also. God names Adam, Adam names his son, and that's something that we continue to do as an outworking of of sort of a connected related concept. Okay, image and the story of salvation. Uh, And we've touched on this a little bit as we've gone along, but I want to be explicit in this, that the story of salvation can be seen in a sense as just the restoration of of the image of God. You can read the whole story of the Bible as the installation of the image of God, the ruin of the image of God, and the restoration of the image of God. And that would be probably a more anthropocentric reading than we would want to do of the whole Bible. But in any case, the whole Bible sort of fits that paradigm. So first off, in creation, and we've talked about this, the image of God is installed in man. In the fall, the image of God is marred, though not lost completely. And then Jesus came to bring redemption of the image. And as we become more and more like Christ, as we've seen through salvation in him by the work of the Spirit, then God's purpose for humanity as his image is being realized. And then in the end, when Christ returns, the image of God will be perfected in us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So that's just glorious truth in light of the hope of the resurrection. And then Revelation 5, verse 20 and 22, verse 5, and we could also list 2 Timothy 2.12, that we will reign on the earth. We will reign with Christ and rule over the heavens and the earth in a way that finally works well and is beautiful unlike how things are corrupted and groaning here under the thorns and thistles that resulted from the fall. So that that originally intended dominion and rule will be perfectly realized uh, uh, eventually when all of those things come to pass. So putting this all together, and this is true from the beginning from our calling in Genesis 1, man is called to glorify God by using his godlike capacities in ways that reflect, that resemble or image his character and his rule. And following the fall and the corruption of man, it is the restoration and the renewal of the image through the gospel of Christ that makes this possible. So hopefully, again, you're equipped not just to answer the exam question, but also to minister in the counseling, in counseling the practical side, in the hope of the renewal and the perfection of the image of God and man, which is, is only possible in the gospel. Alright. So uh we've answered Uh, Question 9. Now on to question 10 of the ACBC Theology Exam. And notice the two parts to the question. First, provide a biblical description of the dichotomist view of mankind. And then secondly, explain the counseling implications of this doctrine with regard to the inner and outer man. So two questions. Again, uh, this is something where you'll find helpful information in the ACBC Standards of Doctrine. It says this, God created the human person with a physical body and an immaterial soul, each possessing equal honor and essential to humanity. The Bible depicts the soul as that which motivates the physical body to action. These constituent aspects are separable only at death. The great hope of Christians is the restoration of body and soul in a glorified existence in the new heavens and new earth. And so, again, a, a, a dense and compacted statement of the truths that actually you'll see unfolded as we go through the rest here. Um, and it, it's it, I mentioned these being useful. Even quoting them directly in your exam wouldn't be a bad idea. So that's a good, concise statement of that. So the question uh, to be answered Uh, at least one way of asking it is, is man a dichotomy or a trichotomy? Now, if these words are foreign to you, um, that's because they come from Greek, so they're Greek to you. Um, So let me give a brief explanation. We get these words from combinations of Greek words. Dika means in two or asunder, and tome means to cut, and similarly, tri means three. So are we, uh, you could say two parts or three parts, Notice the carefulness of the ACBC language, constituent aspects rather than parts. And the reason for that, I think, will become obvious as we go along. But you could say it, you know, roughly. Are we two parts or are we three parts? That's the question. Uh, So basically to say that man is a dichotomy is to say that man has two constituent aspects. And is that up there? Yeah, that's up there on the definition. His body and his soul Uh, Or another way of referring to that second component would be his spirit or his heart. An inner man and an outer man. Now, a view called trichotomy, the other view, replace the die with a tri, so three instead of two, to say that man is a trichotomy is to say that man has three constituent aspects instead of two. That man is body, soul, and spirit. Both of these views, that man is a dichotomy and that man is a trichotomy, both have some kind of history, at least in recent theology. And just a point to make here is does it doesn't make you a heretic to hold to the trichotomy view. Um, the dichotomy view, I think, is, and I'll try to demonstrate this, it's the one that's biblical, uh, but there have been plenty of orthodox people that hold to trichotomy. The important thing, and we'll see some of the unhelpful implications they draw from that view, that's where you really want to avoid it. Uh, but for our purposes, answering the question you want to see, and I'm going to try to show you how the Bible has a dichotomy view. So uh, the reason, or at least part of the reason, for a trichotomy view is a selection of verses that uh, at first glance might seem to teach that. Uh, so if you say yes to that, that there's a trichotomy view, you would probably point to these scriptures, Hebrews 4 verse 12 where it talks about the division of soul and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul refers to your whole spirit and soul and body. Uh, Luke 10, verse 27, your heart, your soul, and your mind. So it could seem at first glance like those verses uh, split these things up. Um, And I'm just going to point this out here. The note, I think, is on the next slide. But uh, the handout that you received at the beginning of this hour I just thought sort of at the last minute, um, how many of you guys have the book, How to Counsel Biblically from the Masters, uh, MacArthur Library, I think it's called. Uh, that's a good one. This comes from that in the appendices. Uh, so if you don't have that or don't purchase it and use it towards your reading, you have this article, which I think is the best thing written on the textual evidence that's used for a trichotomy position. Um, Funny thing about this, Ken Sarles, the guy who wrote that, uh, he died a few years ago. This isn't the funny part. He died of uh, brain cancer after I had worked with him at Voss Lighting over in Dallas. Um, just a brilliant guy, but he spent his latter years working uh, in the office at Voss Lighting. And I read this uh, as part of this training, probably. It goes back years ago. And I came in the next day just so excited to talk to him about it. Because uh, he had written this, and it's just—it is really good. So read that, and I think you'll be—you'll be convinced of the exegesis. The handling of the text is wrong for those who try to make those scriptures teach trichotomy. Uh, so that's sort of the negative side of it. The better—the positive side of it, dichotomy is a better position. Uh, and this is part of the exegesis because distinct words do not necessarily have distinct reference. Uh, and and let me explain what I mean by this, or give you an illustration. Um, I didn't actually bother to point this out, but it was implicit in what we were studying a moment ago. When it says in Genesis 1, verse 26, that we were made in God's image and after his likeness, image and likeness, there are two different words that refer to the same reality. And so I just assumed you you tracked with me as I taught and used interchangeably, image and likeness. Now, each of those could possibly refer to something or emphasize something about the same reality to which they refer. And I think that is, you know, different words are used to describe the inner man, especially heart, soul, mind, conscience. All of those describe the same reality, the inner man. Okay, so why do we bring this up? In part, like I said, because trichotomy has been used to support various unbiblical positions, one of which relates to counseling. And so this is the most common, and you may even be familiar with this, that a trichotomist might say that if people have problems with their body, they need to go to a doctor. If they have problems in their spirit, they need to go see their pastor or another spiritual guide. They might say if they have problems with their soul, though, they need to go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist and psyche. suke, is just Greek for soul. So dividing it up that way and assigning a caregiver for each constituent aspect, what you're going to see is psychologists and psychiatrists. So you can, you can, this is part of the argument sometimes that the Bible teaches that there are these three components. And so you need a, a soul specialist, not a pastor, not a spiritual or someone equipped with the Word of God in order to minister to those issues. But according to Scripture, as I've alluded to already, to differentiate soul and spirit like that is without base in in Scripture. And if you want some really good insight into the details of those texts, like I said, read that article from uh, Ken Sarles. So that's the answer. Man is a dichotomy, uh, two constituent aspects. Uh, and here's where it's better to use constituent aspects than parts, um, and and it is a technicality, but when you say constituent aspects, you're referring to each one as representative of the whole. Man is not to be divided up. Man is a unity, which you see on this slide. You shouldn't think about it in a way that bifurcates or cuts man into separable parts. We say that man is a psychosomatic unity, and you can use that as with a lot of these, to impress people at a party, probably. But psychosomatic unity, which and psychosomatic just means soul, body, uh, from the Greek words for each, suke and soma. So man is a unity, an embodied soul, you could say, or even a besouled body. Uh, Both are true of us. We are a soul and we are a body. So even better maybe to see that the terms body, soul, spirit, heart, etc., each of these, whenever they refer to the inner man, or the outer man, each of them actually refers to the whole person, but from different perspectives. And you'll see that. If you pay attention in scripture, you'll see that that's the case. That occasionally the, the entity, body or heart or conscience is used to refer to the whole person. Uh, and that's just a theological reality. It is, it is referring to the whole person. Uh, in your notes and on the slide here, you see a quote from Anthony Hookema and his book on uh, anthropology is great, probably way more than you need for the exam, uh, but certainly edifying and helpful. He says this, Though the body does see man as a whole, it also recognizes human beings have two sides, physical and non-physical. Man is one person who can, however, be looked at from two sides. So just another way of saying those same things that we've been looking at. So I bring those things up just to emphasize, when we talk about man as a dichotomy, man is still a unity. The inner man and outer man shouldn't be thought of as separable, although they are separated in the intermediate state, uh, which I'm about to talk about here. Uh, instead, rather than being separable generally in scripture, both refer to the person, the whole person. It's not like your body is not the real you, that your soul is the real you. Your body is the real you, also, and and you can probably just think of that in sort of common parlance uh, that people think you know who I am inside is who I really am, and that's not the Bible's view. The Bible's view is you're a whole referred to by your constituent parts at times. So the worldview, the biblical worldview, honors the material aspect of us just as it does the immaterial aspect. And yet, as I mentioned a moment ago, even though man is a unity, not a composite of parts, paradoxically, man is separated, his immaterial from his material aspect in between his death and the resurrection that will happen. This is called the intermediate state. And you see there are a number of scriptures, especially from Second Corinthians chapter 5, that describe this reality. So when we are absent from the body, Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, 9, we are present with the Lord. And that is the case until the day of the resurrection. Uh, we will be, our constituent uh, aspects will be reunited. And that's that's a longing, uh, I think we see in Revelation, uh, as the martyrs are before the throne of God, a longing to be restored to that. And we will feel, in some sense, incomplete until that resurrection reunification of our constituent aspects takes, takes place at the resurrection. So again, the language of Scripture about the intermediate state affirms that the whole person can be referred to by either of its constituent parts. During the intermediate state, the Bible speaks paradoxically in various places of the person as simultaneously in the grave and with the Lord. And we see this, I mean, we see it in the Old and the New Testament. Someone is said to be in Sheol, that's most often referring to the fact that they've died and their body is in the ground. But, of course, 2 Corinthians five nine, Paul says we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. So constituent aspects, body or soul, could be said to be that person in the ground and at the same time in heaven with the Lord. So when I die, if the Lord tarries, it would be appropriate to say that I'm in the ground because that's where my body is. But it would also be appropriate to say that I'm in heaven with the Lord because that's where my soul is. And so there is a sense in which man is an indivisible unity, even in a way not fully, fully comprehensible, even when that unity is divided in the intermediate state. So why do we bring that up here, the intermediate state in this talk? And you may have recognized it was part of the ACBC standards statement on this. And it is because death, the intermediate state, forces us to recognize that man has an inner man and an outer man. Uh, It shows in a powerful way that man is, in fact, a dichotomy. So that's just further testimony to the fact that that's what Scripture teaches. So that's the answer to the first part, provide a biblical description of the dichotomist view of mankind. Secondly, we want to explain the counseling implications of this doctrine with regard to the inner and outer man. So first... Uh, an implication counseling is for ministers of the word uh, and and this was referenced earlier that trichotomy has been used to argue that pastors or ministers those equipped with the Word should handle spiritual problems while people problems with people 's souls should be handled by psychologists and that 's not the case because the Bible teaches dichotomy and not trichotomy. The biblical support often claimed for this position is simply not there. So the help that people need related to the issues of life that aren't something organic, that aren't something like wrong with your body, uh, like if someone has cancer and comes to you, then you should send them to see a physician. But anything that's not that, anything that has to do with just the affairs of life, how people are relating to God, to themselves, to the world around them, to others, that's the domain of the ministry of the word that's implication one. So really, another way of thinking about this is there's no such thing as a soul problem that's not a spirit problem. They're all inner man issues. And I'm going to say it here. I'll probably repeat it more than once. We don't practice medicine in the counseling room. We don't even come close to practicing medicine in the counseling room. You have an organic issue or potentially an organic issue, go see a doctor. And, and even if there's a doctor in the counseling room, that's not the context for medicine to be practiced. Uh, that person should always go see a doctor, get a clean physical, and, and the counselor can deal with the inner man issues. That's what the word is sufficient for. That's what the word is for. That's what the ministry of the word is for, is inner man issues. And so that's an implication of the dichotomy view. Secondly, counselors must understand the unity of the inner and outer man. Uh, and this goes both ways. First, one's heart, the inner man, can have a profound effect on one's body. For example, sinful thinking, sinful desiring, heart activity, these things can have adverse physical effects. Just think about the Psalms where it says things like, Before I confessed my sin, my bones wasted away. That's language where it's David there, I think in Psalm 32, describing the effects of just holding his sin in. just something that's going on in the inner man, and he's describing, and I think it's Psalm 34 also, it just goes through the physical effects of uh, keeping, um, or or, somehow relating to sin, uh, sinfully in the inner man. It has effects in the outer man. And so we see this in day-to-day life. If someone is a slave to anxiety, which is an inner man thing, does that have physical effects? Of course it does. And we see another one even more clearly. If someone is a slave to anger, which comes from the heart, Jesus said, does that have some physical effect? Reddening in the face and a rise in blood pressure? Yeah, absolutely. Sinful thinking, desiring, can have adverse physical effects. Likewise, Righteousness generally leads to greater bodily health than unrighteousness. Um, I'm part of a, a, a ministry that shares medical needs, sort of an unconventional form of uh, insurance. It's not insurance. It's called Samaritan Ministries. And every time I, I or my family, we have to publish a need, they ask some questions. They say, okay, are you abstaining from sexual immorality? Are you abstaining from drunkenness? Why? Because, generally speaking, righteous behavior which comes from your heart leads to greater bodily health than unrighteousness. And we can see some of those connections pretty clearly. And it's intuitive. The proverb says this, uh, that, that you pay attention to what's going on on the outside and it reflects what's going on on the inside. But, of course, it's good to remember there's not always a direct causative correspondence. It's not always true that people... And it's actually rarely true that there's a direct connection between a specific sin and and specific suffering. But it is, uh, it is a biblical truth that there is this connection and the, what's going on in the turmoil of the heart or in the joy of the heart. Both of those will reflect uh, in the body. Likewise, bodily factors can influence one's heart. Physical suffering influences, and and it's important to realize, not in a determinative way, but it does influence the heart's deliberations and longings. For example, when you're physically tired, like if you got less than four hours of sleep last night, your body feels tired. Does that affect the deliberations of your heart? Does that affect whether or not you'd be angry or kind of frustrated? For example, if I said something up here that you disagreed with, and maybe that's already happened. (laughs) Like if I took your favorite verse out of context and misapplied it, and you're extremely tired, irritable, is that going to affect how you respond to that? And the answer, invariably, is yes. That affects your heart. So counselors will need to work with physicians at times to address potential physical problems. Someone comes in and they don't normally struggle with depression and either they suspect or maybe they don't even suspect, but it's just so unusual for them to be down, there could well be something going on in the body that could be addressed and corrected. And although the what's going on in the inner man needs to be addressed from the scriptures, what's going on in the outer man, it could be a grace to that person for that to be addressed by medicine. Uh, I've heard Heath Lambert say that he's trigger-happy in sending people to the doctor to get a physical. Uh, he says, you know, if there's something like that, uh, going on something new, unusual, he just says, why don't you go to the doctor? <laughs> and it's, you know, as counselors, we don't force them to, but, uh, it could be part of their homework, you know, <laughs> along with everything else we give them for homework, strongly suggested. Maybe I won't have you come back if you don't do it, <laughs> but, uh, that's a, that is a good thing to do and to do it consistently. Um, there's just so many things in the, uh, outer man that can possibly have an effect on, Uh, the heart. But, uh, and I alluded to this a moment ago, and you should probably star and highlight and underline um, this point, and then letter C that comes below it, we should not think of bodily influence on our inner man as irrepressible causation, such that a man is not morally culpable before God for his thoughts, his desires, and his actions. Physical variables may exacerbate or even occasion, not cause, but occasion, temptations to sin. But the body, and that includes the brain, never makes someone sin. So that's a, that is a common thing to, to blame. And there's Ed Welch's book by that name, Blame It on the Brain, to blame the brain for what's going on. And the responsibility biblically for what comes out of our inner man lies with our inner man. And Jesus affirmed this when he said that from the heart come evil thoughts, And actions and words. The heart, and here's the balance you need to find. The heart is the initiator of all moral action. All moral action comes from the heart. And whether that's a moral, is a general term, whether that action is immoral or moral, it has a moral or immoral quality. All of it comes from the heart. And that will always be represented or expressed in the body. We can't relate to God or even others in the world around us in a way that just involves our inner man and has nothing to do with our body. All moral action is represented or expressed in the body. And we could call the body then the mediator of all moral action. And there's a chart in your note, in your notes there that sketches all of that out visually, uh, in case that will help. Um, so let me give just a brief illustration of this, and this is something that I find comes up frequently in one form or another in the counseling room. Um, and this case actually goes back a little while, but counseling a married couple where both are professing believers, but the husband has been uh, to a secular psychologist. Uh, and through his testimony, I learned that the psychologist had labeled the wife bipolar. Uh, so the husband in this case was convinced that his wife had a psychological issue, that something was wrong with her brain and that she would not be helped unless she took medicine. And that is, you know, that even difference between husband and wife in the way they view this thing, I've seen that more than once. So this is a particular case where that happened. And in that case, the truth is the wife would experience significant mood swings, and some of that would manifest in what would seem like uncontrollable rage that she would direct towards her husband. So uh, what should I do in trying to counsel them? Uh, one thing I didn't do, again, I didn't try to talk medicine with them. I didn't try to convince him that there's actually nothing wrong with his wife biologically. I don't know that for a fact. So I didn't try to convince him of that. But what I do know is that the anger she was experiencing was coming from her heart. Maybe there was something wrong with her body that was occasioning temptation to sin, just like there's when there's something wrong with my body. Like if I stay up all night, I'm more irritable, more prone to explode in anger maybe. But that doesn't mean that that's the cause of my anger. It only provided an occasion for what was already in my heart to come out of it. So if someone explodes in anger, no matter what's wrong with their body, that was already in their heart. It's coming from their heart. It ultimately has to do with what they're worshiping. And so with this couple from Galatians 5, I showed him first, uh, the fits of anger, that that's a work of the flesh that is sinful. So I'm not trying to give him a biology lesson. I'm not trying to convince him that there's nothing off-kilter with his wife's body. But I'm trying to teach him, and this would go for him and her. His fits of rage were actually worse uh, than hers a lot of times. But I tried to teach him, and that's, it's interesting. He he wanted to assign a, a physiological problem to his wife's brain, but interestingly not his own. Uh, so right there was just sort of a, a contradiction in, in reality. But in any case... I, I was trying to teach him that the way that he responds to things that are unpleasant and the way that she responds to things that are unpleasant, whether that's how his wife would explode at him or that's how he feels physically or circumstances at his job, the way he responds to those things is always coming from his heart. And so he's responsible, and his wife at the same time is responsible. Regardless of anything that might be going on physiologically, and they both need to repent and believe the gospel and repent towards one another and others. And that's the solution. There you have it. Like, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's immaterial, uh, convenient word, I guess, immaterial whether or not there's something going on in the brain. We can address the inner man issues that are coming out with the truth of scripture. They, they can go see a doctor. I would, I would encourage them to do that. Although I would discourage them from taking an unbiblical interpretation of whatever data they get from a doctor. And that, that becomes maybe the closest we come to practicing medicine. We're not practicing medicine still in that case, but we can say, okay, you know, if your chart shows you have a chemical imbalance, that, you know, you can, you can read up on and and listen to your doctor about whether or not that may have an effect on things, but that's not the cause of your anger. Your anger is proceeding from your heart. So just keeping a clear differentiation between the two. So, there again, it's an implication of the dichotomist view of Scripture. Uh, one more, and that's all we have time for. Biblical counseling is not behaviorism. Behaviorism seeks to manipulate the outer man, whereas biblical counseling seeks to bring the truth of Scripture to bear on the heart. Um, and more uh, than these, uh, just be aware there's, and it's in your notes four implications at the bottom of the notes on page 8 that come verbatim from Heath Lambert's section on dichotomy and his theology of biblical biblical counseling. So that should be helpful. Uh, Okay, so that's it. We've answered questions 9 and 10 for the theology exam. And hopefully, as I said, beyond that, our hearts have been filled, uh, hopefully with gratitude and praise for the way that God has made man in his image and how he has made us a soul-body unity, able to reflect him In these ways, and then to be able to minister his truth to one another, even as each of us has an outer man and it's wasting away the outer man and the inner man of those that we minister to. uh, And for us, that inner man gets renewed day by day uh, until it's conformed fully uh, at the consummation to the image of the one that we're supposed to represent in the world. So, again, it's a glorious uh, truth, the truth about man, and it's a humbling truth and one that along with the rest of scripture should uh, lead us to the gospel and to its effect uh, in our lives and in the lives of those to whom we minister. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this truth, for the sufficiency of your word for all things. Uh, Father, we thank you for the glorious truth about humankind and the fact that each one of us here is made in your image and has the responsibility and the privilege of imaging you in the world. And Father, that in particular... Uh, We have trusted you for salvation, and Lord, by the work of your spirit, you've promised that you're using your word to renew us into this image. Uh, We pray that you do that from this time and throughout the rest of this day, and Father, that you would be glorified in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.